You're listening to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and best moments in life, a place where we get a chance to hear from people who are creating a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. This is a place for connection, to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Today, we're talking about adventure and pushing limits as a way to get through tough times. I am so excited to have my friend Tanya Dreher here to share her really special story. A number of years ago, Tanya went through a serious health crisis with breast cancer. The uh, The really short version is that she went through three surgeries and had treatment. And when she finished her treatment, she thought she was out of the woods. But before she could catch her breath, even for one day, she and her family had to face yet another devastating diagnosis, this time for her son. When we're facing really difficult stuff, sometimes trying something new, getting outside of our comfort zone, out of our routine, can be a way forward. A new challenge, a supportive community, adventure, and even fun can be a part of healing and channeling our grief. That looks different for everybody. It might be a vacation or a retreat or a class we take, or maybe we run our first 5K or start a new business venture. But for Tanya, it was something different. She flew halfway around the world to push her own limits and test her physical and emotional strength while she was metaphorically climbing a really difficult mountain in her life. She literally tackled a mountain that some people only dream of. And she did it with only eight months of training and a whole lot of heart. It was in the darkness of a late night when she was sitting quietly alone that she made a spontaneous decision to use her physical strength in honor of her son and thousands of others who are losing their physical strength. Tanya's funny and she's humble and she's smart. She's a writer and an advocate and a mom. And today she's sharing with us her journey, her journey through grief and heartache to boldness and bravery. I think you are just going to love her. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for being here with us today. I'm so glad to have you. Hi, Marisa. I'm happy to be here. I am super excited for two reasons. Number one, because I just get this time with you. And number two, because I'm so excited to share your story. I think the world needs a little more, a little more Tanya. So Tanya, when people talk about having struggles, like a lot of people, you know, there's a metaphor, a term we use, a turn of phrase that, you know, we're all climbing a mountain and we use it to reference a struggle or a challenge or some kind of adversity. But you took that to heart. You took it literally. <laughs> and you decided, you know, on a whim almost that you were going to climb Mount Everest, you were going to climb to base camp. Let's talk about that today. What led you to that? How did it start? Where'd that idea come from? Wow, it's so multifaceted. But the short and sweet is that, you know, I have a son who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy and he cannot walk. And I think Everest came to me after a series of other things happened in our lives that I wanted to do that trek for him. 
I had a picture of him on the back of my backpack the whole way that first year. And I took him with me and we took hundreds and hundreds of kids with Duchenne along with us on a flag that we took to the top. You're right. You did figuratively take so many people along with you. I know that for me, you were a great inspiration and I was in awe of what you had pulled off. I was also relieved because you had asked me at one point if I would go with you and I, I turned you down. <laughs> so you I said was, no. I was so disappointed. Very happy to watch from the sidelines. <laughs> the more I heard about the trip, I was more grateful that I had said no. <laughs> but tell me about how it started for you and in some of the dreams you had before you faced some of your own challenges with your health and what you had gone through. So I met my husband when we were both teaching English in the country of Poland in 1993-94. We both taught on a Native American reservation in Minnesota for a while, and then we decided to move east where his family was. So we both got teaching positions in New Hampshire, ended up getting married, and having three kids in less than four years, which I don't recommend. <laughs> but... Talk about climbing a mountain. <laughs> Right. But our plans, my husband and I, uh, since we had both spent a lot of time overseas and also teaching was, um, you know, when our youngest child was in kindergarten, we wanted to sell the house, pack everything up and move back somewhere overseas and raise our kids teaching in different schools around the world. Unfortunately, when Gus was diagnosed with Duchenne, that dream kind of fell to the wayside. We knew we had to stay here in the U.S. for his medical care. But you had a little bump in the road before that with, with your own health. I did, which I thought was a huge, awful thing, but it was nothing compared to Duchenne. When Gus was three, and my other kids were five and seven, I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And I was only 38 years old, so I hadn't even done any screenings. It mm -hmm. just appeared out of nowhere. It ended up being stage three and it was quite serious. So I had a year and a half of chemotherapy. I had a double mastectomy, reconstruction, other surgeries along the way. I had, you know, 10 weeks of radiation and we got through it. And we were so thankful that I was still there and I was seemingly pretty healthy and our kids were all happy and healthy. And then a day after my last chemo treatment, we got a phone call telling us that Gus had Duchenne. And it all kind of came together. When I was finishing up my treatment, I had noticed that he was missing some milestones. He couldn't jump, for example. And we weren't that concerned about it because he was our third child and I was we were so busy and also I was going through treatments. But I did put in a call and took him to a neurologist and they did a blood test and it just so happened to come back the day after my, my last chemo treatment telling us that our son had a terminal and progressive illness. Just devastated. Unimaginable. I mean, we know each other because we both have sons with Duchenne. And I always say, I think when you have this in your life, you should get a free pass on anything else happening, right? Any other struggle or horrific thing, it's not the way it works. But you, I think the same for you with what you went through with breast cancer and surviving. And what a moment of duality of relief that your treatment's over and yet you literally didn't get to catch your breath you didn't get a day off you didn't get a day to celebrate say i am done with this treatment before you were facing what you have described as you know something worse than you could have imagined even as you battled cancer yeah i was so angry for so long i tried really hard to hide it 
I think I did a pretty good job of it, but people would say things like, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And I would just be like, well, God made a mistake. Yeah, I can't handle this. I love when people say that. I'm like, <laughs> he made it? a big mistake. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I never really said that, but I, I felt it. You know, I just felt like I can't, I can't handle this. But you're I nicer did, than and- me. Sometimes I say, well, how does it feel to know he doesn't think you're very competent? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I say, I can't handle this. What are you talking about? I can't handle this. I don't have no. a choice. No, yeah. no. That's the thing is you don't have a choice and it's it's do or die, literally. I do think now that I'm not grateful that I had cancer. I will never say that. It can always come back and it very well could. But it did prepare us for the way we needed to navigate the medical system for our son advocating for ourselves and for me. Great point. Yeah. So you just started a new notebook, right? You just started a whole whole new notebook. And so you channeled it though. You said you were angry when you found out. Do you remember if you think about that day? Do you remember what you felt like? We were driving home. I think we were coming back from my chemo treatment and it's kind of fuzzy now, but my mother was at our house watching the kids. And I just gotten off the phone. And of course, I went straight to my computer and Googled, you know, muscular dystrophy. I think at that point, the doctor said he was he was pretty sure it was Duchenne, but we had to do a genetic test. So, you know, when you Google muscular dystrophy, I was kind of thinking, you know, this isn't so bad. As long as he has any kind of muscular dystrophy besides Duchenne, we're good. Right. We can do this. Well, lo and behold, you know. It came back as Duchenne. But even so, at that point, my mother was still there when we found out that he had Duchenne. And I remember she was sitting across from me in the living room and Gus was sitting on the floor playing with his animals, you know, almost four. And he was just so perfect. He was like this perfect little being. I said that to my mom. I said, how can there be something wrong with him? He's so perfect. How is it possible that he will not be able to live the kind of life that we had planned would live. And what do we do about that? I remember when I came home with a diagnosis and it was my parents who were at the house and I had to tell them and I didn't want to tell them. I was like, you know Mm -hmm. what, maybe the tests are wrong. And I didn't want to tell my mom and dad. And I remember they were sitting in chairs next to each other at my dining room table. And I just leaned over their backs and I put my arms around them. And I was crying and I was whispering and telling them. And I just remember my dad My dad broke down and he just kept saying, oh, no, not Joseph. Please, not Joseph. Please, please, not our Joseph. And I didn't realize it then because I was so terrified and focused on Joseph and and about myself. Like I was struggling, literally struggling to breathe. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it was kind of one of those moments where I realized that, number one, this affects all the people around us, too. It's not just the child. It's not just our nuclear family in our household, but it's so many other people that are impacted. And at a lot of points, it gave me hope that there were people who cared beyond my four walls that were vested and cared in this process. You find that with any kind of tragedy like that, you find that there are the people who stay and there are the people who run as fast as they can the other way. Yep. So you were at this point still figuratively <laughs> climbing a new mountain. I mean, you, you navigated, you know, a cancer diagnosis. You, you were, came out on the other side in a positive way and suddenly you're like, oh, here's this new mountain. You were still, like I said, figuratively climbing, but you didn't just 
take it sitting down? You kind of got busy. Yeah, within, I don't know, maybe two months, we had decided that I was not going to go back to teaching, that we would start a nonprofit to raise money for medical research for Duchenne. Because, you know, as soon as you start research, at least, especially 11 years ago, you start researching Duchenne and there's like, there's no cure, there's no real effective treatment. And that just was unacceptable to us. So we started the Hope for Gus Foundation and we started turning out fundraisers and raising money and, and funding medical research. I did not know the first thing about running a foundation, but I knew that I couldn't get up in the morning if I wasn't doing something every day that I thought could somehow help Gus and these other kids. I just jumped in and I, I think we made a lot of mistakes, but we also did some really great things. The biggest positive about starting the foundation was meeting other people like you, Marisa, who have been such a support for us. But after about seven years, I started to get kind of frustrated. I was thinking I need to do something bigger. Everybody's doing a 5K. Everybody's doing a gala or a, a dessert tasting. And those are all great and they bring in money. But I would plan an event that would maybe bring in $5,000, which is great. But and you were exhausted. Oh, my gosh. Oh, This just happened over and over again, you know, and I, I wasn't in a great place. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't very healthy. I was stressed. I had anxiety because I, I felt like I, I have to do this for my kid, but this isn't working. I thought, what can I do? What can I do? For some reason, I decided to Google the tallest mountain in the world. And I thought it was Everest, but it might be, you know, like Mount Fiji or Kilimanjaro. I didn't know. So I Google it. Lo and behold, Everest is the highest mountain in the world. And I thought, hmm. Now, keep in mind, I'm not any kind of an athlete at all. I don't know what I was thinking, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, the phrase Everest to end Duchenne popped into my head. And it sounded magical to me. And I thought, if we can get a team to go to Everest and get people to sponsor them, it's going to be like a killer fundraiser, right? So... I get on Facebook and I like shout it out over social media. I'm going to Everest for Duchenne. My husband gets up the next morning and checks Facebook and he's like, what is happening? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I should have just said, oh, I was just, I'm just kidding. But I didn't. <laughs> so, so Tanya, no, there are people who have base camp Mount Everest on their bucket list their whole life. It's a goal in their planning and their training. And you just literally sat in front of your fire one night. Maybe there was a little wine drinking involved. And you just oh, came up with this I'm idea. Oh, i say yes, there was. <laughs> <laughs> and you just decided. Yeah. But as soon as I decided, I was instantly energized. I was thinking maybe this would be good for me. Because I, you know, I wasn't that healthy at that point. And I need to be healthy to take care of my son. We have to lift him. I need to be here for him. And so I just started, you know, we live in New Hampshire, so there's mountains everywhere, which I would like leisurely walk on a small one like three times a year in the summer. But I needed to train during the winter because, you know, there's a lot of snow on Mount Everest. So I started just walking up mountains and I was like so ridiculously unprepared. <laughs> I remember in November. Now, I, I'm going to pause you and I'm going to put in a disclaimer. We are not recommending everybody do what Tanya did. Oh, no, <laughs> no, no. And Please now, don't now. <laughs> take a few walks around your neighborhood and then fly to Nepal. <laughs> no, I, I did train. I was actually unprepared for the training part. Hiking up mountains in the winter. And I remember one time it was, must have been December, I think. 
the whole side of the mountain was like a sheet of ice. And I fell, didn't hurt myself really, but I slid, I don't know, it felt like for hours on my rear end, all the way to the bottom. And I was like, felt so defeated. And I kind of put a picture on social media. I'm like, look what happened to me today. You know, donate to Everest to Endushan. <laughs> and and uh, all these people come back with, why weren't you wearing your micro spikes, you know, on the ice? And I'm like, oh, I don't even know what a micro spike is. Was everybody who reached out to you supportive? Like, I mean, I was cheering you on from my couch. Was anybody saying, Tanya, are you crazy? What are you thinking? Oh, yeah. Plenty of people. The people who know me really well said that with kind of a smirk because they knew that I wasn't going to listen. And then there were people that I didn't know that well who, like, if it came up in conversation, they would say things like, why are you going to Everest? Why wouldn't you just hike in New Hampshire? You've got the beautiful white mountains. You know, they're really hard in places. Why don't you just do that? And I was like, because it's not Everest. And it's not Everest to end Duchenne. And I really feel like we needed to do something that not just anybody can do. So heading to Everest, share with us a little bit of like the actual experience getting there and what it took and how you got there, how you started, what it looks like. Bring us into that a little bit. So my team and I, we landed in Kathmandu in mid-October 2015. We were met by our guides that I had hired through a trekking company. We spent a couple of days in Kathmandu, and then we took a local flight from Kathmandu to the base of base camp, which is a little village called Lukla. And it's just a tiny village, but at the time it was the only way you could get to Everest. The most dangerous airport in the world. That's what it's called the most dangerous airport in the world because you fly over the mountains and then you get to the base of Everest and the runway. It's shorter than my driveway. If you miss the runway, you're going off the side of the mountain. So we landed in Lukla and you could immediately tell that the air was almost felt thicker because we were already pretty high just landing at the base of Everest. We started to walk and the trip took us about 17 days we had to put a couple of rest days in there to acclimate to the altitude. The interesting thing to me is to get there, to make it, to go, to plan it. You were leading a team. I mean, I know you had guides, but you were the foundation of making this happen. And you had to really focus on yourself and on taking care of you and getting there and making it. What were you thinking when you were there? Were you were you worried or how was it to be so far away? I was not worried, but I've been to Everest three times now. And every time before I go, when I have to prepare, my anxiety is through the roof, leaving my kids, leaving Gus, the medications, blah, blah, blah. But once, I, once I'm there, I'm completely in the zone. Nepal is amazing. It is just the most magical place on earth. Not just how beautiful it is, the culture, the people, everything about it. So once I was there, I felt pretty good. That first year, I got altitude sickness, uh, a form of altitude sickness called HAPE. I didn't realize that at the time. I was coughing, but, you know, everybody coughs when you're, you know, in like 25 degree weather climbing up a mountain and it's windy. So then we got to the last village before base camp. It's just, you know, like a helicopter pad and a couple of tea houses where climbers and trekkers can stay before they try to summit. I was coughing a lot during the night. Got up the next day, had breakfast, and we set off for the three-hour trip to base camp. I was coughing. 
And this guy comes running up behind us, American, and he goes, hey, did you stay in that tea house there last night? And I said, yeah. And he said, I think my room was next to yours and I could hear you coughing all night. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. How rude. You know, I was like apologizing. <laughs> and and he he said, no, listen, he said, I'm a pulmonologist and um, I'm worried about you. I think you might have high altitude pulmonary edema. And I just kind of looked at him. I was like, well, <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and he said, I don't think he said, I think you need to go down immediately, you know, because that's the best cure for anything altitude related is you just descend. Right. And I told him real quickly, I said, look, here's what we're doing. We have this flag. We've got the names of 900 boys on it. We're going to read it from base camp. We're going to read the names of every one of these kids who has Duchenne off into the wind. And we're doing this as a fundraiser. And, you know, here's my picture of my son. And, and I have to go. Like, I have to go to base camp today. And he goes, all right, so let me try to help you. So he, he asked me to lay over this huge boulder. And he did percussion on my back, you know. And I was just, like, coughing and coughing and coughing. And then he gave me some uh, medicine that he had. I don't even know what it was. Something to help draw the fluid <laughs> off, uh, off my lungs. <laughs> I trusted him. I didn't even ask to see his medical license or anything. I didn't even know his name. <laughs> I took the medicine. <laughs> and uh, we made it to base camp. I want to feel like I was there on the mountain. Like, what did it look like? What did it smell like? What were you seeing? What were you feeling? What What was that moment that you really had been preparing for for a year in honor of your sweet Gus and your family and, and everybody else on that flag. What was it like? When we were approaching base camp as a team, you would think that we would have started celebrating and cheering when we got to base camp because we had accomplished this, this goal. But that really wasn't it at all. We all kind of stood there and looked at each other. And some people started crying. And the mountains are smoking in the background. And you're... You can see there's called the Kumbu Ice Fall. It's like an ice glacier, and it, it's just an incredible place to be. But base camp is also very barren looking. And so, you know, several of us were crying and we were hugging. And then we pulled out the flag. And on this flag, were the names of hundreds and hundreds of people, mostly boys, who have Duchenne. And we, you know, recorded ourselves each taking turns reading the names of these people afflicted with Duchenne, including our sons, reading them off into the wind, just, you know, if hoping that God or whatever higher being you believe in would hear us and take their names and protect them and keep them safe. And it was so emotional. It was felt almost kind of life-changing. And I felt so honored that these people had asked me to take their boys with them to Everest, you know? The word that comes to mind when you were just describing that, I I was just thinking it sounds almost like a holy, just a an incredibly indescribable, but like a holy experience, not even in a religious sense, but like you said, whatever it is you believe in, that's out there. It was it was so spiritual. And, you know, our guides, you know, they tend to be Buddhist, not everybody in, in Nepal, but, the, you know, they brought these prayer flags that they wrapped around our necks and they gave us a Nepali congratulations and it was all just incredible it was very moving and hard to describe do you leave a piece of your heart there every time i go and i bring little pieces back i can't imagine and i was i was watching and and with you in spirit and i know for those of us you know still at home in our warm cozy pajamas it was a really emotional thing tanya you talk about you carried the boys with you and and when you talk about 
you know, your your near miss. I mean, you almost didn't. You could have descended. You could have not completed it, and justifiably so. I think there's a parallel between what you did and getting to the to base camp. And it's like everything we deal with with our boys, and even lots of difficult situations where you were carrying those boys. But boy, oh boy, that last trek for you from the tea house to base camp. I sort of feel like it was the boys who were carrying you. Beautiful. It's so true, Marisa. It's so true. Before that day, did you ever want to turn back? Did you ever think, I'm not sure I'm going to get there? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, like every day. But <laughs> I, I, I thought that every day, but I never wanted to turn back. There was one morning when I woke up, we were just beyond the halfway point, and we were in this village called Ferice, which is in this gorgeous valley. Mountains just shooting up all around it. Like, mountains like you've never seen in the Himalayas. And um, we started our trek that morning. And as soon as we walked out of the tea house, I just started to cry so hard. And I, I didn't really know why at that minute. You know, at that moment, I just started to cry and cry and cry. And I remember one of my teammates said, well, you can cry or you can walk, but you know, there's not enough air here for you to do both. <laughs> oh, <laughs> is that right. beautiful? That's great. <laughs> And that was the, exactly what I needed to hear, you know, and he knew why, I think, why he sort of knew why I was crying. He had a child with Duchenne also, but it was like, it's just so emotional, all of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit, you're doing something a little bit bigger than yourself, right? It's beyond your training tracks in New Hampshire. You didn't just climb and then you left and came home. I mean, you stayed a little bit after the climb in Kathmandu. You had an encounter with that pulmonologist again. Yeah. <laughs> we were in a we were in a hotel in a hotel restaurant in Kathmandu and I I didn't I didn't know the guy's name. I didn't even think I remembered. And uh so we go into this restaurant and sit down and all of a sudden I hear from the back of the restaurant, "Hey, you're alive." <laughs> and I turn around and it's the doctor and his wife and they come over and then we're all shaking hands and he's like I was really worried about you and I was thanking him and it was just <laughs> it was a really nice encounter after you know I wanted to be able to thank him again because I was when, when I did meet him on the mountain I was so intense about like I have to do this that I I, I just barely acknowledged him I just like grabbed the medicine and like went for it <laughs> you made some other friends along the way though in Nepal and in particular in the Dushan community in Nepal. So before we left for Everest that first time, I had connected with a gentleman on, you know, in some of the Dushan pages on Facebook, and he was from Nepal. And he himself had Beckers, which is like kind of a, a, a less severe form of Dushan, you might say. He lived about an hour outside of Kathmandu, and he takes boys with Dushan into his home. Boys who live out in villages where... They can't go to school. They don't have wheelchairs. They can't really leave their house unless one of their parents carries them on their back, which does happen a lot. And they just have no access to anything. They're just existing. So he, at that time, I think he had six or seven young men living with he and his wife and his son. And it, it was wonderful because these boys had each other every single day. They weren't isolated. He was giving them art classes. We got them some iPads and they were learning how to go on the internet. And it was just, you know, he was making their lives, you know, worth living, even though they had this disease. So I asked him if we could come and visit and meet the boys. 
so we did. We went to his house and we met these young men and, and um, it was just, on one hand, it was really tragic and we realized how much the medical care that we have here in developed countries is so, so, so superior. I mean, everybody knows that, but when you actually see it in action like that, you know, steroids like helped my son walk until he was 15. And, you know, these boys probably stopped walking at seven or eight, you know. Great perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So we give a percentage of our, um, every time we go to Everest, we give a percentage of what we raise to this this home and try to help them out. So you've been three times and I know the first was, you know, monumental because it was, it was the first and you, you were pretty sick on the last day, but overall from everything you've seen and the perspective you've gained and the people you've met, do you think it changed you? Oh, it, immeasurably. I think it changed me in so many ways that I'm just, I think I'm braver now and not about trekking mountains. I think I'm braver about things that I might have to deal with in my life. You know, I'm not as scared anymore. I used to just be paralyzed by fear of what was going to happen to Gus, what was going to happen to me. You know, I, I feel stronger now I, that, you know, I think I can, I hope I can deal with whatever comes and, um, you know, maybe it was just a, I needed to prove it something to myself. Well, my money is on you, my friend. You are <laughs> you're amazing. What's next for you? Well, we are going back to Everest in November. It's looking like as long as people have their vaccines, it's going to be open for, for trekking and taking another team. We're currently recruiting for that team. Yes. So let's talk about that. I know I, I, and not for myself, but for, <laughs> so you're, you're recruiting and I mean this seriously. So if somebody's listening and they're intrigued and they're like, you know what? I like her spunk. I like, I think it'd be fun to do this adventure. Can we put something in the show notes for this and um, tell people how to contact you? That would be great. People can email me. And one thing I do want to say is everybody who hears about this, there are most people like you say, I could never do that. But what I want people to know is you can do it. I've never been athletic. I've never been even really like a hiker. I mean, I am now. It is so doable. It's a long, slow walk. You have to go slow anyway because of the altitude. You have to give your body time to acclimate. And I don't want to scare people with my, you know, my coughing story. But people say there's no way I could do that. We've had, I've had a 16-year-old on my team. I've had a 68-year-old on my team. Grandparents, anybody who wants to do it can do it. And the you know, if you're in reasonably good shape. You had a pretty special someone with you last time. Yes, I took my daughter. My daughter Isabel was 18, and I took her with me to the third ever Sandushan. Being there with my daughter, who is so impacted by her brother's disease and her being able to actually feel like she was doing something and she raised the money for herself, you know, to go. And I, you know, pictures with holding her at base camp with the flag. And it was just, it was the most incredible experience. We were already close, but it was such a wonderful thing to share with her. I think what I would always, I love about your story and what I take away from it is, you know, so metaphorically we can all be climbing a mountain in reality most of us are not going to climb a mountain. But I think what, what you do is you, you've shown us a way to give that journey meaning. And it, for everybody, it's not going to be going to 
Everest Base Camp. It could be something else. It might be something that nobody ever sees. But how do you make it count? And how do you give it meaning? I know when I watch you and see what you've done, that's what it does for me. Thank you for saying that. My goal was never to be an inspiration, but if I could inspire people to do something that's in their wheelhouse, or maybe not in their wheelhouse, but that they want to try like I did, I just, I, I am thrilled to, to do that. I think, Tanya, too, what happens is you do this with laughter. Like, I know when we're together, we <laughs> laugh till our cheeks hurt. You you have fun. You have a lightness about you. But it's not all you are. I mean, you're really honest about the fact that I've been afraid. I, I've had anxiety. I've struggled. But yet you still find the bright light, the bright spots, the, the happiness and the fun. Thank you for saying that, too. It's not like my philosophy on life or anything like that. It's just that... What else are we supposed to do, Marisa? I can't live this life and be sad and anxious the whole time because that's not living a life and that's not a life for my kid. It is so hard and you just, every person has to do what they can do and that's it. Yeah, you're amazing. So glad we get to share this. Thank you so much for asking me to come. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.